Welcome to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Every week, I host live chats via our YouTube channel with leaders in the AFL and high-performance industries. Join me live every Sunday at 6pm where I debrief the recent chats and announce the upcoming guests. We drop an inspiring and educational episode every Monday. If you like the show, please follow us on your favourite podcast app. Hi, I'm your host, Jack Clean, and today my guest is Dr. Samantha McLeod, the sports psychologist at the Richmond Tigers Football Club. He's also Managing Director at the SAM Centre, Clinical Health Psychologist and Sport and Exercise Psychologist, with over 30 years' experience in private practice in well-established multidisciplinary clinics, and a consultant to private businesses, peak and sporting bodies, tertiary lecturer, and a clinical leader in corporate and public health organisations. Highlights from this episode, we discuss what it takes to develop a champion's mindset, mental skills athletes can start practising now to become elite, importance of getting out of your comfort zone, why resetting throughout a performance is critical to remaining calm, and how to improve your recovery and performance with diaphragmatic breathing. Before we start this episode, join us for our next Prepare Like a Pro live coaching event. We have one for Australian Rules footballers on AFL game day recovery and how to improve your energy and performance for game day. That's on Friday, the 26th of August. For more information, click the link in the show notes. And another for strength and conditioning coaches, what you really need to know as a strength and conditioning coach, not only from the coaching side of things, but as well for running your own business. That's also on Friday 26. And for more information, click the link in our show notes. Let's get into today's episode with Samantha. I hope you enjoy. Welcome, Samantha. Thanks for jumping on. Thank you very much. That was quite a mouthful, wasn't it? There was a tongue twister, that intro. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of a tongue twister, but there's plenty to unpack over the next 60 minutes. So really looking forward to sharing your story in, in working in, in there, both in the clinic, business, as well as, of course, elite sport. Take us back to the very beginning, Samantha. At what age did you recognize that you had a passion for psychology and then eventually working in with athletes as well? Yeah, it's probably, I remember a lady came out when I was in year nine and I didn't really know what psychology was. I think she was actually a child psychologist at the time. Yep. And but prior to that, because I was an elite basketball player, so I, like everyone who's an elite athlete thinks they're going to end up in sport, I thought I was going to be a PE teacher or a physio. And I'd done some placements with my auntie who was a teacher and then I'd gone into hospitals doing phys- physio rounds and I, I sort of ignore the average. I really was only interested in the people who are really quiet or the people who are arcing up in the playground. So I, I sort of said, I wonder what those people do. And then this person spoke to me in year nine and I just knew, and I thought I was going to work with young people, which I do, but ended up sort of in the elite end, really, even not just sport, but work with gifted kids and, and adults as well. So, yeah, so it was, I sort of knew pretty early. Yeah. But, but I say, I say actually, people, I have one of those faces that people just tell me they're, they're stuffed, even if I'm sitting on a bus. <laughs> So I think since I was a kid, I've been holding everyone's secrets, trying to find what I was meant to do when I grew up. Very yeah. good. That's a, a special power for a sports psychologist or any psychologist, I imagine. <laughs> what about strong, strong influences or mentors, if you like, throughout your, your career today so I remember, far? I remember we did a HH session at Richmond and when I first came on and I was thinking, oh, who are my heroes? And they're all male, which is ironic, like throughout my whole life. Yeah. I, I did have some teachers that had a big impact on me, but probably one of my first real elite coaches in basketball when I was playing at Bulleen Templestowe and then played National League. He was a real innovator and pioneer. And we were doing probably since, you know, state teams since I was 14, doing a lot of sports like stuff. Like he he was a PE teacher, but he just learned rapidly. And so I learned all about, you know, a mental rehearsal I would do for my own games. He would prepare us like, professionals we would do all the stuff like that so I sort of had that grounding really early on and then it was his probably thirst for learning and being on top of the game and still he's like over 70 and he lives in Queensland and still rings me up every now and then to pick my brain and vice versa oh how good yeah he's been an influence my whole life probably the next man I'd say was when I was doing psychology and that was my mentor and supervisor professor Rob Kirkby he was quite a well-known sports psych at the time, and he actually sort of really suddenly died at the, my last year of my PhD. He was my PhD supervisor, but he was like over 60 and he would just run. He, he just thought he was like 30, so he, he died doing what he wanted, running, running and 
just had a heart attack. So that was very difficult, but he was my mentor for about 10 years. Took me, so he he worked with Australian cricket. He worked with a lot of national teams and I was like his little protege and he would take me to all the trainings. He would put me on the spot, try and make me run the sessions as a budding little sports so like when I, yeah, I was like, oh my God, I was like, my heart was going a million miles an hour. I had to deal with the performance anxiety. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he really threw me in the deep end and he pushed me in. And he was amazing because I couldn't decide whether I wanted to do health psychology, which was more like medical psychology mm-hmm. or sport and exercise psychology. And so he basically designed the pathways that I could simultaneously qualify for both. So that's why I've got endorsements in both now through UPRA. And he, out of his own time, ran all the sports like course content and everything after hours for me. And then I did a joint thesis. So yeah, and he took me all around the world to his international conferences and, and made me get up in front of people. So I think he, he professionally, he really inspired me yeah. um, and still, still does. And then the other guy is, is someone that's crossed paths my whole career, and that's Dr. Peter Carport, who was the AFL medical director. And he's the director also at Alfington Sports Medicine Clinic, where I worked for 12 years when I first came out. And we did. Uh, we also worked in the space of compensable care, TAC and WorkSafe on the clinical panels together. And, and we always seem to refer to each other still. And then ironically, I ended up in the AFL and he's just sort of resigned. He's still in the AFL, but, but you know, we just keep crossing paths. So he inspires me as well. He worked in my sport, basketball, and still does. So oh, they're probably good. the people. Yeah. 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 Some great people. Uh, it sounds like with some uh, fantastic growth experiences all throughout. Yeah. Yeah. Take, take us back to, as you mentioned, like being thrown in the deep end throughout your early on in your career. How important for practitioners listening in is it, do you think, to yeah, have someone that does sort of take you out of your comfort zone in a safe yeah, way, of course? Yeah, very. And and even, you know, I do do supervision for placements for students and, and, and things. And I feel like they're still quite nervous to go out like they've had the training, but but to actually run the interventions, even take someone through a relaxation script or a meditation script, he used to make us, like we would run the groups and we would be the participants and we had to do all of that. And then each of us had to be the facilitator of the group and do all this practice. So he really was into building the efficacy for us. Uh, And I think a lot of the courses aren't run like that anymore, but I certainly do that for my supervisees is say, here you go. You know, give us give it your best shot. You're going to learn something, uh, but but the way to do it is actually do it. Applying, <laughs> like yeah, get practice, yeah, yeah. So I, you know, they even the ones at my clinic, my practice, are, are still very nervous actually, and you can understand that because they're dealing with people and mental health most of the time. Yeah, but but they're getting used to me pushing them and getting them out of their comfort zone because, as I said, that's how I got where I w- was. You know, I, I used to say even to Peter Harcourt, like, I don't even understand why you keep referring people to me. Like, how do you know if I'm any good? You know, and uh, he would go, I know a lot of people and a lot of people talk. And it's because he, he, he just put them there and I had to, you know, step up. So a lot of the strategies that I'm teaching people, you, you actually have to use yourself in those settings. Yeah. And to, to develop confidence at that earlier stage while you're building your experience, is it a matter of reflecting on an experience to to improve on the next one, or is it rehearsing in your own time? Take us through, I guess, to yeah, to start building some momentum yeah. behind your practice. As you- it's actually probably pretty pretty similar to what we do with the younger players, but you know, development players going through the pathways. You do have to think. You know, I think I was fortunate. I think playing elite level basketball, mm. I used those transferable skills really, a lot of people tend to think in the domains they're in and they think I haven't done this before. But but I always say you, you've got to look at your past successes, look at what you've done and look at your transferable skills and that gives you confidence that you don't need to know everything. Like the, the people who come out of sports sites think they have to know everything about every sport, the rules, you know, the umpire. And I said, that's not your role. Like you can learn that from the athlete. You don't have to swat up about that. So looking at those past successes and knowing if you have transferable skills, I think is really important. And and also preparing. So so one of the things Rob used to say to me is don't be so arrogant to give somebody something that you haven't tried yourself. Mm-hmm. And that if you're going to do things, know whether they work, how they don't work, what you have to do to tweak them, because that actually builds efficacy in the intervention when you can talk yeah. to someone like that. 
So I, that has been really big with me and I, I, I push people to do that because I have heard I have heard people that give people relaxation scripts and they've never done it themselves. They wouldn't have a clue yeah. what it's like. I think well, when the person comes back and says to you, which they do, athletes, high-performance athletes push you, right, yeah, and, yeah. and they, they come back and they say, that doesn't work, that's too simple, there's no way that's going to fix my problems, right, I'm yeah. not going to do it. You, you yeah. have to know where to talk from to be able to get them to know, well, you, you know, well, yeah, it didn't work for me when I first started. I could only do five minutes or, you know, this is what I had to do to fix it. That, yeah, you have to get the buy-in. Yeah, <laughs> really. So, yeah, so I think all those strategies that you try and teach someone, you have to actually use yourself. Rehearsing, you know, did a, it, it, Rob told me to write out my script to run a relaxation session and just go over it in the mirror like you were doing so that it becomes automatic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, so once I did that, I, I don't think I, you know, you may tweak it. It's basically become a bit more natural. Yep. I had a, an interesting experience when I first tried to make some relaxation CDs and meditation CDs. And, and it was some, somebody took me to their studio, but he had been a past client and he was really good with audio and music and all of this. And when I was trying to do the real, like, it was like I was talking to this microphone. <laughs> he yeah. stopped. And he said to me, Sam, I just want you to talk to the microphone like you're talking to me and just do it naturally like I'm here in the chair. <laughs> and it was the best thing he could do because I just completely changed my tone. I didn't do that really daggy meditation voice, you know, that people yeah. went on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> I knew that, right? I practiced that. So I felt way, way more comfortable doing that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Like you said, it is very similar to, to any, any skill, I guess, is rehearsal, reflecting, and, and repetition, practicing over and over again so it feels comfortable. Yes. In, in terms of getting a foot in the door for, as, a, as a sports psychologist, how challenging is it early days while you're building your network base and your, and your skill set and, I guess, your reputation? How, how challenging can it be to get some experience in elite sport? Yeah, I think in Australia, quite quite challenging because you know in a lot of other countries it's it's it could be a full-time job it's I think probably more so with the increase in mental health problems in athletes that that's where psychs are now getting the roles in, in elite sport but really like if unless you're aligned with an institute you know it's very unusual to get a full-time role so that's why I always say to to my students you, you have to learn to generalise and have good clinical skills, not just be a performance psychologist because you're not going to be able to get a, a role like that. My whole career, I've probably had numerous consultancies running at the same time. Yeah, so working with a number of teams or organisations, doing it in private practice, lecturing in it, you know, so not there's a, there's a variety of roles a sports I can take, not just one-on-one or, or with a team. So I try and get them to think more broadly about how you can use your skills. Yep. And then from a, uh, obviously, from a financial point of view, that, that makes a lot of sense in terms of job security and, and building to an, a full-time wage if there aren't many full-time uh, contracts out there. But do you, is, do you find also by doing that in that, you know, without a generalist approach and getting exposed to a lot of different environments with different clients, that it, there's, there's good reference points when working with athletes because you've had more experiences or different variety yeah. of experiences? Absolutely. Like when I first came, because Alfington was a clinic, I spent a lot of time as a basketball getting rehabbed at. So, so when I, they didn't have a sports site, like I'd been there since I was probably 10, right at the clinic. And I remember Peter saying to me, when you graduate, I want you to come in as a sports site because we've never had one. And I have no doubt that me doing in a multidisciplinary clinic and doing diverse work, you know, with all kinds of clients is what set my career up. Because all of those doctors, all of those people still refer to me now. You know, this is like a very long time ago. And, and actually, when I, when I was at Elfington, I was getting a little bit too busy. So I sort of said to, to them at the time, listen, I don't want to leave. But, but if I don't set up my own practice, then we're just referring these people out to people I don't know. And I would yeah. rather set up my practice and bring the like-minded people in. And then we network. So we now in network, we're the psychology and I send them there for sports medicine and lots of other things. So those, you know, those referrals keep going your whole life. But I don't think people are getting those experiences coming out now. So, you know, they, they, they don't know how to market. They don't know how to build mm. that, that network. And I said it takes, I volunteered, like I volunteered for two years while I was 
graduate, like under supervision. Mm. And that was at a place that was actually like really heavy mental health and, and coming off prescribed medication. So I got a massive, massive experience in mental health. Now they offered me a job at the end of it. And, and I think people have to be prepared to, to do those things because, because how do you know you're any good until you start getting the outcomes and people start referring back to you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Although that first client, there's, I've got this one first client who is Maltese and still all these years later, somebody that's connected to her keeps coming and they track it back. It's, it's just amazing. Yeah. <laughs> like, wow, you yeah. should give a commission. Yeah. Great. <laughs> Paying dividends later on, hey? <laughs> <laughs> what, what about for the for the athletes listing in more specifically footballers, obviously working at, at yeah. Richmond, for those that, like you mentioned, not everyone has access to a sports psychologist at local grassroots level or, or even semi-professional potentially. Um, yes. What, what are some things, if, if you don't have a coach like you, we're lucky enough to have that is passionate in that area and quite holistic and, and, and is working in that space, what are some simple things that, that athletes can do themselves to enhance their performance? From the mental side in terms of mental skills and mental training? Yeah, I think I think the first thing is I, because there hasn't been full-time psychs really in, in football, it's it's starting now, at least the teams are starting in AFL to it, it's more broad that psychologists are going into them. And because of they've got more access now through Tackle Your Feelings program where the community going out into community clubs. So they're starting to hear about about psychs. And I think I think the main thing with younger players trying to break in is they're thinking mainly about their their physical skills, their strength and conditioning. You know how to be elite in that way. You know how to to and sometimes it takes the you know young guys some years before that will actually they'll get to their peak. But we've got to think about the mental side of it actually being immediate, right? Because you don't have to wait to build the strength through your gym program until you can be a ruck or you know, play a big position, you can actually start mastering these skills and putting them into training immediately. And many of, say, the, the veterans may not have had that, you know, when they first came in. They're, they're sort of learning now. So I think also we're seeing some younger guys coming in and already, because they could come from any stage, they may have actually had access to sports like. And it's um, an advantage. Already. Yeah, yeah they're really familiar. They love it. They want to come. They make it their norm, like the dietitian, you know, everybody they've got, they see it as part of their team. So I think the earlier that they can get into that and practice it, because I think what people think that it, it's it's aimed at game performance, mm. but really just like your kicking skills, just like your marking, your defence skills, you need to be practising these in training yeah, in combination wow. with what you're doing. Yeah, so... And also I think the big thing we're trying to get because, you know, some of the young guys, they change state and their whole lifestyle's changed. They don't have their friends, their normal routine, so their well-being's affected. And those strategies that you would use for performance, you can use for your whole life to actually get that really balanced lifestyle that you've got a lot of energy, keeping your energy up because I think it's really hard for some people, particularly if they're brought from remote areas, you know, rural yeah. areas into the city, big city teams can take years to actually be a professional, you know. So I think if they can at least get this kind of basic foundation skills to build resilience, it helps with that adjustment over the years and protects against mental health as well. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting point that you made, or a few there, but that the aspect of how normalized, you know, normal it is to work on your athleticism from such a young age, but the mentals for you know for most part isn't touched on until maybe you become elite already. So your physicality, you know, if you had a bar chart or something, it would be you know in terms of the hours you put in is up here, and then the level that you're at with your mental skills in terms of time energy that you put into it is, is you know at the beginner stage. Yeah. Are you seeing, like you've got your finger in the pulse, you're in the industry, are you seeing shifts in that? Like you mentioned, there's more awareness around mental health now and then yes. and, and by the sounds of it, over the last few years, more from a performance side as well. Do you think that high schools potentially and, and state programs are going to start to put a little bit more time in, into? Yeah. I think the schools like, you know, the, the sports schools like Maribyrnong and Mobile and some of the private schools like I do a bit of work, you know, out there that they're actually bringing sports psych into their programs to help the kids with their sport. They may be a golfer, they may be a judo player, and 
they're bringing in someone that works in the field to help them with this book, but also teach them the strategies. And I think that that's fantastic because actually all the strategies that I would help someone with, you can use for your study, your exams, you know, across the board. So I think that's definitely happening. And I think that there's de- definitely, particularly in primary schools with what we've gone through for the pandemic, mental health awareness and building resilience in kids is in schools. And and I think that older students are really getting into mindfulness and things because of what they've gone through. But I, I would say like the amount of Zooms I did with sporting organisations, like like all sorts, lifesavers and, and all sports that were struggling with their athletes with mental health during the pandemic gave them real access to people that they wouldn't normally have thought about, I think because it got so hard to manage what was going on in their associations, that now they have the networks to to pull on and know the names and the faces. And so I think it will happen more and more. And it would be ideal to put it into schools, actually, especially any of the athletes that are, I mean, some private schools have some of the best athletes coming out into the program because they play sport Mm. Mm. a lot. Yeah. 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 And tricky question. There's probably not an answer to it because there's a fair <laughs> subjective side to it, I imagine. But the pandemic to a side, like mm-hmm. with, with mental health and, and players, AFL players, it's been reported, you know, each year or so, there'll be a few that retire early due to mental health. And do you think that as a society, we're just generally more aware of our mental health? Or do you think there's actually increased mental health issues over the last sort of decade? I think both. I think I think our mental health literacy is improving so people can detect it more. And I also think particularly in AFL, you know, once once somebody leads and role models talking about it, it makes it a lot easier for everyone else. That happens all across, you know, when there's abuse, that happens too. If people speak up, you get 16 others who are going to tell their story. So I think I think and particularly, you know, for me, in male mental health, that's really important because we know it's underreported and we know the suicide rate is higher. It's particularly in young males. So it's important that that people feel comfortable doing that. I do think, I do think the particularly the demands of professional sport are getting are impacting on mental yeah. health. And I particularly worry about the media lately and and how they don't understand the damage that they can cause and how how these people's lives and well-being get affected and I think they need to be educated and I don't think they should be able to come out into journalism without really hearing a story of what I have to sit and, and witness. So I think the demands are much bigger yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, thank you for sharing that insight. Yeah, That's, yeah it's really good to, to hear yeah, sort of your, your thought process in that and it makes a lot of sense. Uh, with, the, with the media side of things, do you think, the ethics have been crossed, do you think, over the last few years with, with players and some of the stories that are shared or, or like how can we move forward with it, do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, and I've said this for a long time, it is, it's one of my pet peeves. <laughs> I would, you know, I really like to, sometimes I'd want to run onto the stage and interrupt because they don't understand. They don't understand what they're saying and they don't understand what an athlete could be struggling with, mm. that they say such things. So their mental health literacy is poor and they can't imagine they can't imagine what they're doing they wouldn't imagine what it's like for someone with social anxiety so I, I do think that what's starting to happen is the athletes are speaking up but you know there's been some quite tragic circumstances for that to happen and it should never get to that point and I also think we're definitely as a college of sport and exercise psychs we're starting to feel that we need to have a voice in that area and make sure that 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 it's understood and speak on behalf of the athletes that we treat. So it is something that I think will will move forward. And there's certainly a lot of discussion among the psychologists in Australia about this. And, you know, we wouldn't want to let it get to the point that there was, you know, a suicide because you see this stuff in schools, right? I mean, if if people feel badgered and harassed and 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 provoked and taunted to some degree when they actually know they struggle with mental health issues. Mm. We've seen that in schools. So I don't know why. I don't know why that's necessary. Most elite people and professional people who've been able to deal with media can answer most questions and should be given the right to actually say, well, I, you know, I don't want to answer that. Well, yeah. You know, I don't understand why somebody would want to keep 
provoking somebody who already has enough stresses. Yeah, I was trying. Couldn't agree more. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Hey there. Hope you're enjoying this episode with Dr. Samantha McLeod. We're just going to take a quick break to hear a snippet of our interview with Matt McGregor. What about highlights of your, your career that you look back fondly and, and that you're proud of? I was really lucky when I got into the Olympic sports. Typically what happens, it's a four-year cycle and staff sort of leave, get to Olympic Games. It's been a huge build-up, you know, really exhausted and, and leave. So there's often jobs um, and opportunities in that first year or so. Um, I actually got in right at the tail end of a, an Olympic cycle, so I kind of parachuted in. Um, yeah. And the, the kayak team was one of the first teams that I got to work with, and we had an Olympic athlete in Hannah Davis, and she won a bronze medal in an absolute nail-biter of a race. And oh, I wasn't there, but I was watching it at home, um, and I was just jumping off the, the couch. It was the most sort of thrilling thing. And this was one of these races where it was literally like that and it was the last stroke they got across the line to um, to win a medal. To hear the rest of the episode for Matthew McGregor, make sure to scroll to episode 93 on the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Now back to Dr. Samantha McLeod. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy. Going back to the athletes, for, for developing listeners, you, you mentioned how important it is to start practising mental skills. When you're working with an athlete for the first time, what do you like to see in terms of how coachable someone is and can you, uh, what, what can young athletes take on, do you think, to make the most of working on their mental skills and mental health literacy in terms of yeah. their, their mindset when they're working on these skill sets? Yeah. I think, I think they do have to be open to know that if they want to be elite, then they're going to need both. I, I always just say it's like the secret weapon. If you have the mental stuff, everyone's going to get the same training. They're going to get the same access to resources. The difference is there are people born that just arrive with these kind of what I call champion mentalities. You know, they're, they're mentally agile. They've got grit. They're, they have a thirst to, to learn and grow. They're internally driven. They focus on their own mastery rather than, you know, where they should be in comparison to other people. They just, they, they have a deep belief in themselves that they will get there. They just need to persist. These are the characteristics of some of the most successful people on the planet and they know how to stay composed. They know it's necessary. They can adapt to advers- adversity. These people don't really see obstacles. They, they, they don't describe things as negative they actually see everything as an opportunity to grow and they don't even see emotions as negative they accept them all so this is some people have that but all of those things that i mentioned there can actually be taught right because and and even some of the veteran athletes i might see haven't had that and they may have the characteristics, but it's just gone a little bit haywire and we need to bring it back, you know, in the pocket of where it will work to their advantage. Yeah. So, so people can learn. I mean, there's, there's quite a bit of evidence that says, you know, if you see a successful person, find out what they do and mimic them. Mm. Do what they do, right, because it works. And, and we know that peer modelling is one of the strongest motivators. So. So I'd say, look at the people you think. I always ask my athletes, who do you admire? Who have you got on your pedestal? Who, who do you think you want to be like? Because that's that's the driver to say, well, we've got to find out what they do. Even if it's an injury, they've never say they do an ACL and they've got no idea and they don't want to do all the hissy little exercises they call them. You know, they don't want to do all that. But when they know that that person did that, then they will do that because they see their back. Yeah. So I think that's important. You know, and and speaking a lot to people, similar to business. I remember when I was opening up my practice, I spoke to so many business owners and private practice owners, found out everything they did wrong, so I so I didn't have to make that mistake. You know, I was yeah. going to start off wrong. Well, I'm sure I'm going to make mistakes, but not those ones. Yep. You know, and and so if you could, yeah, well, if they could, yeah. the more yeah, more they talk to successful people and have those mentors. We know that mentors actually are. Even in the gifted people, it's hard for them to find mentors, but we know the ones who really succeed will have mentors in their lives. And so I spend a lot of time trying to find those people too for, for elite and professional people because otherwise they won't be challenged. You know, you, it, they need to be challenged. Yeah. So, you know, I think there's so much 
of where they can start. It doesn't really matter. That it's it, it, you know it, it, people will take that one strategy. Somebody might like the breathing, and that's where they start. And somebody else is really visual, and likes the imagery. Doesn't matter. But what I say is just get a couple of things in your toolkit, make them automatic. As soon as they become as automatic as your physical skills, now we go for another one, and another one, and you keep building. And then that foundation skill you gave them should actually be the foundation to different levels to optimise their performance. You know, so they've already got a bit, a bit similar to their physical skills. We're, oh, you got that now. Now we're going to move to here. We're going to do this. So, so that, yeah, yes, yeah, over time. And and like you mentioned, like even veterans that are champions in the game are still working on on this area. So it's fantastic for for young athletes to know that like you said it can be an advantage the younger you start no doubt in terms of setting up, up your career for for those that are listening in that want to strengthen their inner belief or strengthen their ability to, to compose under high pressure moments in a game you mentioned the importance of of practicing it in training for transference on game day performance what, yes. what would it what would it look like you don't have to name players but what would a sort of yeah. process look like for, for some of the richmond players when they're training during the week to help a specific area like the ones you mentioned the elite have yeah, so so I might be looking at, say, doing their breathing, like the diaphragm breathing, because that will help them sleep the night before. It'll also reduce performance anxiety. We know that if they're in a fight-or-flight response, if the game gets tense, that their blood goes away from their centre, moves into the extremities, that makes them more uncoordinated, so very stilted and tense. So it keeps them relaxed, which gives them a chance for the automatic physical training motor learning to occur so instead of just thinking oh you only use that when you actually feel anxious mm. we would be getting them to train it say with set shot kicking use it practice it in between any breaks of play quarter to quarter to reset even even just you know set of bounces while they're all walking back you know they have scrimmages those kind of things if the coach is yelling at you use it then to stay composed so that you don't your arousal doesn't go up so they were trying not to go up and down like this with the game. We're trying to stay in a certain pocket. Yeah, because for the reason being, would that be quite exhausting if you're sort of spiking up down? Yeah, it can be exhausting, but also it means you're very reactive to what's going on. And, and, and what we're trying to do is build resilience, which means your inner world is, is what you can regulate and what you can control, and the external world is, is going to be chaos sometimes. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean you need to match it. In your internal world, we have to keep this grounded because we expect that to get chaotic. But the more you can stay grounded, in fact, you know, when you teach people this kind of real groundedness, this is where they get into the zone and into the flow experience by being able to do that because they feel it feels so weird, so surreal um, that they can feel all of that when it's going real fast out there. And they yeah, feel like slow mo. Yeah. 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 And everything slows down and you know, the wild, wide field of vision. So the more we can get them practicing it earlier. So so, you know, for me as a basketballer, there there would never be a set of foul shots that I wouldn't do the breathing exercise that I that I teach others, you know, as mm. as I'm waiting for the ref to pass me the ball, I'm I'm doing that. I get the ball, I breathe out and I'm following through. Then I start again, next shot, do it again. So that's at training. We we were doing all of that at training so that it's paired together. That state that I felt is paired with success, which also then leads to imagery, mental rehearsal, where we want you to be rehearsing it in the state you want to be, not tense, not anxious. And the more likely you are to achieve that state, then the more likely you'll see successful outcomes in that imagery. So that's what I mean by there's a foundation block that you start from and then you can, you know, put other skills in there, you know, confidence building and and changing. I think the big thing for young footballers coming through, usually they've been they've been the superstars, right? If they've got drafted, they've been the superstars in their junior teams and 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 playing well. But then they come in as now small fish in a big pond with people they've idolized most of their lives. Mm. And they feel like they're behind the eight ball on everything. You know, they've got to catch up on strength, on speed, on diet, on, you know, mental stuff. And they come in and they're like, oh, how can I possibly absorb all of this at once? And, and for them to understand, nobody does that. They, they do it over time and to give yourself patience. But the mental skills 
You don't have to wait for that. You can do that immediately and that might actually help you while you're a little bit impatient. The other things have to build Absolutely. up over time. And throughout all that, you can reckon you can you can start to see how important it is to have awareness, especially in a fast-paced chaotic game like football. So in you can have all the skill set, mental skill set in the world, but if you don't know, like you mentioned, having that pairing of when an umpire or a ref um, passes you the ball or you're lining up for goal to be able to tap into those, uh, into diaphragmatic breathing. Um, yes. I imagine that is it the same process. That by, by doing it and practising it throughout training, you, that starts to become automatic. Yes, becomes automatic. So, so my supervisor used to always say to me, you know, you, you don't learn to swim when you're drowning. You won't know how to swim. Right? Yeah. So yeah. You've got, you actually got to practice that. You've got to practice that a lot so that, you, you know, when you're drowning, you've got a good chance of getting out of there. And that's what I say to the guys. It, these have to be practised. So I want you to do it like I did it, right? I remember when he took me through all these groups and I had to do it. I did it every red traffic light because I had a million jobs. I would do the breathing. I would do it before and after eating because I got six times a day. I would do it at basketball. I would do it to go to sleep. So I was getting so much practice. It doesn't have to be. It's not supposed to be just in your sport. This is a skill. This is a life skill. Um, and so is imagery because we know the evidence shows that those who can visualise what they want will more likely get it, right, when they, when they create clarity and map it backwards. So all of these skills can be used. That's why I say I use performance psychology for all my clients. Because doesn't everybody want to be the best that they can yeah, be? In every moment. <laughs> yeah, even if it's in their relationship, even if it's just at school, you know. Yeah, so, so why would we save it all for elite professional athletes? It's, it's just that the demands get higher. Yeah. So they get more rattled. There's more sports-specific factors like, you know, major injuries, performance issues, contracts. You know, that's what's different. Mm-hmm. And. For athletes listening in that want to start practicing and pairing it with their activities in life and at training, what would be a simple method to follow? Yeah, I think, let me think where you would start. I, I, I probably think the biggest thing is the awareness. So what people tend to do is they worry about their mistakes. They worry about making mistakes because they want to be better. But, but mistakes is completely expected, right? We, that's just the chance. You're doing something that you're learning. We expect mistakes. I would say the the people who even even when they're still playing, when they're sixty, playing their sport and they love it, they they're the ones who recover from their mistakes the quickest. Mm. So I'd say as young athletes, the, the first line would be: Are you spending, you know, fifty percent of your concentration on that past mistake? which only leaves you 50% concentration on this present moment. Mm. And then they wonder why they get a roll of mistakes because they're actually not able to have 100% focus here. And they can't tell me if I if there's a golfer's swing, say, or something like that, if they've got 50 back there and 50 here, when I ask them what went wrong in your technique, they can't tell me, right? But when you've got that focus here and you recover quickly into here, so that's what I'd say to young people they get as they want to achieve, they get very critical of themselves because they, they think they're trying not to make mistakes. That's never going to happen. What we're trying to do is recover the quickest. On anyone on that ground, you want to be the quickest that recovers from a mistake. And, and if you keep doing that, then you're going to, you know, mostly, but maybe 90% of the game, be the one who maintains the focus and, and endurance for longer. And and we know that persistence and being present are big, two big predictors. So I'd say that they need to stop criticising themselves and learn how to propel themselves into the next moment. Yeah. And going back to your career, so we had you know, talking about challenges that you've, that you've faced, but from a professional sense, what's been a major challenge that you faced and how did you learn or, or grow from it? Well, we've been heaps of <laughs> I think when, even from when I when I had my PhD, so I started like I was playing national league basketball, and I was doing my masters still, right? So I was trying to do my masters, and I was running around the countryside. I had like a hundred jobs. I was still working as I was a psychologist, but I was working at that Footscray TAB and in a sports shop because I needed the income, right? And then I was sometimes working with other teams, so I was 
doing my own basketball and running around. And then it got to the point that in my PhD, like it took forever because I, I had to do it part-time because I was working. I was like, hmm, what am I going to do now? I'm playing, but now I'm working with the teams that are my competitors, giving them the secret weapon <laughs> against us. And it was a really tough decision because yeah. I loved both, and, but I couldn't keep doing that ethically. I, I was like, you know, I knew I was going to play my sport as long as I could, but, but I also knew that I wanted something outside that. So making that decision to give up basketball, even though I was still, you know, pretty fit, I could probably still play, it was more that I knew I needed to put that energy into, into that because it takes it takes a long time to earn earn the respect and reputation. Yeah, you actually have to go through the hard work. So that was one big point for me. I think my supervisor dying in the middle of my PhD, and he was my clinical supervisor. That was massive. It probably took me about twelve months to get my head back to finish the PhD. Yeah. And I was working. I was working full time as a psych then too. So that was massive. And then I think. The weirdest thing for me was probably because I've worked in my sport, that was probably where obviously it was the easy pathway for me. You know, I could work with national league teams. I could work with my own club. And I think I've noticed this with other, other psychs too. It's actually harder to work within your own sport somehow because you're, you're well-known, right? You're well-known. People know you. And, and it's much harder to cross that, cross and just step into the professional realm without people having all of these you know, other ideas about you or even giving you the professional kind of respect. So usually in other sports, you know, I worked in rugby and soccer and all these other sports. Clean slate. Yeah, I could just go in and I didn't expect that. That And, and that probably was hard, like, because you're so passionate about it. But once I realised that, um, then it was sort of like a light bulb moment that, that freed me and said, oh, okay, well, I've done that. I don't have to do that anymore. And that's when I actually decided to, to, you know, take a gig at AFL. I was sort of like, and in the end, I realised it was probably what my whole career, everything I've done has amalgamated to come back to this because I think I was always passionate about male mental health and helping high-profile males in the air achieve what they want to and still say the same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> was it, it's amazing to hear, and it, it's definitely been a, a common theme with with all the guests that have been on the show. Is that it, you know the journey isn't all laid out out in front of you and linear. It's, you know, you sort of take what's in front of you and and make the most yeah. of it and and see yeah. where it ends up. That's great. Yeah. And 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 on the flip side, what about over your career? What proud moments? What? Oh, yeah, I was thinking about this question when you said it. Well, I think I'm very similar to what I try and get my athletes to say it, it to be like. Actually, my most enjoyable moments is actually just doing work. I, I feel so fortunate and I feel really privileged to share and witness some of the stuff and build the rapport and trust I do with some of these athletes who have had really difficult times. And, you know, when I think about it, I've, I've, I've been able to help my own grassroots basketball club when they were struggling in the pandemic, which meant a lot to right up to the Opals you know, trying to prepare for the Olympics and, and they were in a pandemic. There's moments like that that I think I've really been lucky. I've been in multidisciplinary teams, which I love because I learn heaps about that. I work with gifted people who who challenge me mm. and make me be a better practitioner and and I learn and I have revelations and and I have to keep on my toes. But I actually think just the whole thing, I just feel like the whole thing is incredible it's it's incredible to witness people's journeys and I think the only time I get really emotional is when they get happy when they get to their holy grail and then then they're like oh I I tear up and I I get you know they can tell me all these tragic things and I'm like just you know there just going through it but yeah to when they make their dream come true when they fight through stuff that people would not realize they're going through yeah I just I can't even describe it in words really it's it's incredible. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine some special moments you've shared with, with yeah, many people. That's yeah, inspiring work. Um, we'll move yeah. to the personal side of the the, the podcast. Yeah. So they get to know Samantha or AKA Sam, as you've referenced some people <laughs> uh, over the podcast. A favorite inspirational quote or life motto? Do you have one? Well, I was thinking about this, and I love quotes. I read so many books. I've got that many quotes. I actually, write them down. 
But I think uh, I've got this, my own little quote that I'm going to have tattooed on my body someday. But, yeah. but it sort of amalgamates everything of how I've lived and how I want to keep living. And it's just a really simple sentence that is, be here, be true, be love, be more. And, uh, and they're all the things that make me, you know, keep being the best version of myself. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's, uh, that's almost like your value system, but also a reminder to be present in the moment. Yeah. In the, mo- in the present yeah. and to strive to keep being better. Yeah. 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 That's a good one. Um, <laughs> what about uh, do you have pet peeves in your work life? Oh, God. Fire you up. Or it could be in your, it could yeah. be in your yeah. industry as well. Yeah. Yeah, okay. There's actually, I'm a pretty passionate person. <laughs> and so I might get just as excited, but I get just as fired up about yeah. stuff. Yeah. There's like a whole list. But I think, I think the hard thing is I do think people anywhere taking advantage of, of, great situations and people's generosity to help them. I, I do think that the generations coming in now have a strong sense of entitlement without actually earning it, without earning the right. And, and you know, people people would <laughs> expect me, I've put a lot into my mentoring and supervision and growing people. They really don't understand. We never had anything like that, right? We had to just work it out and find it. People are coming out expecting, they would expect their first gig to be Richmond, mm-hmm. right? Like where I've been working 30 years, yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. That I cannot understand that, right? That doesn't make any sense. It yeah. doesn't also give them the grounding they need to work with people like that. Yeah, and have success right? and make an impact. Yeah. So that's a big pet peeve. The other pet peeve is I cannot stand sport supporters who bag their own teams and abuse them. <laughs> Why? Barrack for a team, yeah, and abuse them. Like they're supposed to be your favourites. That, that's a really big one for me. The media, of course, I've said to you, I, I feel like that. And I think because I'm a, I've been in team sports, the whole, even in my practice, I'm trying to build a team culture. I'm trying to make them feel like they want to come to work and, and, and this is a great team. And it's hard if you're not really got the team mentality in the first place. They should have been individual athletes, you know, that kind of stuff. It, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, all my teammates and anyone that I've been in the team with know they were going to get told off by Sam if if they did anything that was against the team and not the team first. So that's probably one of my pet peeves. We're in it together, and it doesn't matter whether you like anyone. We're you know we're working together, and don't ever leave anyone out. Don't bag a person. Don't ostracise them, or you're going to get Sam's rap. Yeah, yeah, we're here working yeah. for the same thing. So fantastic. Yeah. You're sounding like a coach. It could be a. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and what about uh favorite way to spend your day off? Oh I wish I had more day on days off as a wish. But my favorite thing. Some I, I I would fluctuate depending on where I'm at and what I feel in my life. So the, the biggest thing for me is I I love to reflect. I love to reflect on where I'm at, where I want to go, you know, am I actually using all my own strengths? Am I am I reaching my own potential? So I often don't get enough time these days to do that. I used to love to immerse myself in nature. I could sit on the beach for hours, but I'm really doing all of this, I guess, visualizing and planning and stuff myself. The daydreaming, I love that. And I love the beach and sometimes I can't get the break. So I'll do what I call little urban retreats and I book myself into a city hotel and I do the float tank and massages and pampering. And I just stay overnight in a really comfy bed. And it's like a 24-hour thing that I do. So I, I introduced those a couple of years ago and they work for me. Um, urban retreats. Yeah, yeah. Urban retreats. And I actually thought, what a good business idea. I should start, yeah, start you know, busy business women. <laughs> yeah. Start the urban retreat. Yeah. Very my, 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 quest, my quest is actually to get more days off next year. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, it sounds like you've got plenty, plenty opportunities going on. So, uh, yeah. but yeah, you de- deserve it. And and like yeah. you mentioned off there, you, you're now up north, and and you've you've done that. You're practicing what you preach. So, yes, um, yeah. yeah, good to hear. Recharging the batteries. Yeah. It's important for all of us. What What are you excited yeah. for 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 2022? What's on the horizon with all the things that you do? Well, it doesn't seem like there's much left of it. I can't even believe it. Well, I know, because... It goes quick. Where, you don't have much else... <laughs> Yeah, can, can I say I'll be excited when I get a break at the end of the. <laughs> I'm excited about that because I really I've been working, you know, that'll be almost three years 
through the pandemic with her, yeah, you know, really stop. not a decent break because I had to run my practice, you know, through COVID, through all the, you know, to just keep the practice going. So I'll be looking forward to that. I'm I'm very excited to watch Richmond and how they go and, you know, each week and hope that they really, I guess, find the best within themselves. It's not really about the finals, but just feel proud of what they've done by the end of the season. I'm excited about lots of the little holidays I've planned for myself. <laughs> I think everyone is because nobody's been anywhere. Like in yeah. Melbourne, everyone's planned it out to find the yeah. simple things, really, really, I'm excited about. And you mentioned your clinic for, for those listening in that want to get in contact with yourself online, but also um, potentially book in a place at, at your, uh, with your people. Uh, where yeah. would be where do you get in contact? Where's the best place to, to find your clinic? Well, in the show. Well, probably the website. We, I've actually just done a massive re. We're about to relaunch the new website, but but the number and contact details. So it's www.samcenter. Spelled and that's got the contact number or email address. And what what would be some common sort of cases or scenarios that people will come to to Sam Center? Well, we've got a right. I've tried to basically build the team so that they have, I have someone for all my specialties. So the health psych we've got. So that would be anyone with like medical conditions, chronic conditions, injuries. We have health psychs. We also have clin psychs and, and me and some others that do quite a bit of mental health work. We would do a lot of child and adolescent work. So young, I'm training a team because I'm so busy with the sports psych that, that I've probably got about four protégés at the moment that I'm trying to, they do a lot of the referrals that I can't take. So we've got quite a big focus on sport and performance psychology and also the kids at school because we used a lot of lot of work for that. Yeah, they're probably other, they're the, probably the most. I mean, I'm the only one who works in there because I, after I finished my PhD, I went and did a master's of gifted education. So the reason I did that was because I was sort of attracting elite people with mental health but they also wanted, a bit like what I said, they wanted more than just their sport. You know, they, they were interested in making a difference outside their sport. So, so it married quite well. So I, I, I specialise in that and working either with young people or gifted adults, which there are quite a few in sport. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah well, for those listening in, it might be parents, it could be yeah, young athletes or, or, yep. or coaches, practitioners that work in performance that want, or business people, business owners as well. Yeah, make sure yes. you get in contact. We'll, we'll add the link in the show notes. Last question for you that's just popped up in my head. You mentioned how important <laughs> it is to have an open mind, but for these methods to, to work, uh, you do hear some athletes, that potentially maybe more experienced athletes, that now that stuff's not for me. You know, yes. but, you know, it's a, Close-minded, however you want to word it, but yes. what would what would be your uh, approach to when hearing an athlete that is that is it a matter of just letting them be and, and they've got to come to you, or do you feel like at times you can start to shift that closed mindset towards being more open? Well, definitely. You know, I think I think people just psychology per se think, oh goodness, this is scary. It's a little bit scary, but I definitely think I got way more referrals for probably athletes that needed mental health treatment, but it seemed a little more cool to go to the sports psych than another psych. Yep. So coming to the sports psych, you know, a little they, they just seem like they're, they, you know, they'll deal with some performance stuff, but you're really treating the other stuff at the same time. Sure. Um, and, and at the start, they are guarded and they think that it won't work. But how I work is if they're elite, if they're coming through an elite pathway or whether they've actually made it into professional sport, all of those people have already done something right. They know how to play their sport because they've been picked, right? So it's not necessarily about teaching them and trying to get them to do these new stuff. It's trying to be a mirror and, and let them see who they really are and what they can do because a lot of really prolific athletes don't know how to turn on their strengths because they don't see them as strengths. They're so natural to them. So sometimes it's not about saying you need all this mental skills. Sometimes it's about saying, what have you got? Do you know you have this? And what about if you just turned it on consciously? What would happen? Well, well said. Well, yeah, thank you so <laughs> much for, for coming on and, and sharing with us your, your journey as a sports psychologist, working in the clinic, running your own business and, and everything you've done. You've lived full life, plenty more to come, of course. <laughs> um, 
You've mentioned the your website. For those that want to connect with you, maybe practitioners, where's the best place? Are you on social media or, or is it LinkedIn? Where's yes. Yeah, we've got a, we've also got a, the Sam Center Facebook page and we've got yep. a, a Sam, the Sam Center LinkedIn page. We're on Twitter. The email address also is on the on the website. So usually usually it's it's emailed through to reception and then whoever it needs to go to, they'll forward it on. Yeah. Very good. Well, yeah, yeah thanks again, Samantha. Thanks for jumping on. Thanks, Jack. Thanks. It was lovely yeah. to see your face. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we'll have to catch up in person at, at some point and share a coffee in Melbourne or something like that. But, if we have time. <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll make it. We'll make it. And thank you for all the listeners as well that have tuned in. If you tuned halfway through the show, make sure to watch it on YouTube and we'll release it on our podcast next Tuesday. Our next Prepare Like a Pro Live chat show will, will be with Ibram Karim. He's working at Blackburn Rovers as a rehab physiotherapist and that will be at Friday, 3.30 p.m. Australian Standard Time on August 12th. I'll see you guys then. If you enjoyed this episode and want even more, our academy is for you. The Prepare Like a Pro Academy is a platform that hosts exclusive features and bonus content such as a Q&A segment aimed at getting to know the guests on a more personal level. Here's an example with Emily Meehan, head sports dietitian of Collingwood Football Club. What are things that, that fire you up? Oh, this one is always, uh, I suppose it is, um, it'll be topical for most people, I think, but staying in your lane. And I often find that with nutrition, everyone eats, so everyone has an opinion. And I think that's what really gets me fired up um, because so many people try and provide nutrition advice based on their end of one experience when they did intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it might be. And then game changes, yeah, game game changes, whatever that might be. And look, it probably keeps me in a job, but that it does drive me insane because yeah. sometimes the information can be so detrimental um, and opposite to what I've been working with my athlete or athletes. And, you know, and because they hear it on someone's socials or through a documentary, it unravels everything that I've been working with an athlete. Yeah, yeah. Another feature of our academy is the opportunity each week to join myself as co-host on the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. Here's an example with Academy member Rama Davies, the friendly conditioning coach at the Box Hill Hawks. Welcome Rama to the chat. Uh, Rama has also worked at, at Box Hill, or currently he's working at Box Hill Hawks with us, awesome. so he's another Box Hill man uh, in the strength and conditioning department. So. I'll handle it over to you, Rama, to, to ask you a question, mate. Thanks for joining us. Excellent. Thanks, Jack. And yeah, thanks, um, thanks, Sam, for the chat. It was uh, I found it to be really insightful. Plenty of gems in there, um, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, mate, my my question to you was: you spoke quite a bit about um, perspective during that chat, um, and I was wondering what are some of the things that you either know or um, do physically that um, you wish you either knew or did uh, back at the beginning of your career? Uh, what are some of those things? Mm, yeah, good question. Um, yeah, so I suppose with perspective on life, um, that sort of point, um, it yeah certainly yeah has been massive for me now and, and didn't probably have that as much um, when I was younger. Um, I suppose one thing I might mention is is gratitude. I spend a lot of my mm. time um, doing a lot of gratitude exercises, listening to podcasts, doing a, a journal every day just a bit to say what I'm grateful for, sort of three things. And um, that's a fantastic way that I've been able to, yeah, like reset and, and just kind of gain that gratitude and perspective about, you know, that there is more to life than football or, you know, might be whatever as an SNC coach, you know, if something's you having a hard time, um it can be massive with just yeah opening your eyes a little bit and losing that sort of tunnel vision or being stuck in that in that work bubble um so that's that's been huge um i think i wish back then when i was younger i asked more questions and was a bit more open to different things Mm. i think i was a bit single-minded back then and um you know i thought there was one way of doing things and um if i kind of didn't have that fear fear of you know asking a silly question or fear of judgment it would have got me a lot further and i probably would have learned a lot quicker um 
and, yeah. and yeah, like just, yeah, being open to sort of different things because um, you never know what you might find. It's just, yeah, there's so many people, like great people out there, knowledgeable people to learn off. And there's plenty more where that came from. If you would like to learn more, then enter patreon.com forward slash prepare like a pro or head to the link in our show notes. Thank you for listening to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. If you like this episode, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, give a review, or even share with your mates. The show is recorded in Melbourne, Australia. Be sure to follow our Instagram page for all updates on our latest and greatest. If you would like to get in touch to suggest a guest or advertise with the Prepare Like a Pro podcast, please email me at jack at preparelikeapro.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.